0: Hey everybody, welcome back to the Anxiety Book Club. In episode 16, I discuss the personality trait of perfectionism with psychologist and professor Dr. Martin Antony. We discuss its definition, potential origins, how it manifests, how it can be very problematic, and how to treat it. I hope you enjoy today's episode. Thanks for listening. okay hello and welcome back to the anxiety book club uh this is episode 16 and i'm very pleased to be chatting today with dr martin antony he is the author of this month's book which is called when perfect isn't good enough strategies for coping with perfectionism Um, he is a professor in the department of psychology at ryerson university in toronto uh, also founding director of an anxiety treatment and research clinic as well as a a fellow of the Royal Society of Canada and past president of the Canadian psychological association. Does that about sum up your, did I get your credentials right?
1: Uh, Yeah. Yeah. That sounds good.
0: Cool. What the Royal Society of Canada? Sounds like a fun group. What is that? Uh, So what it is, there is an American equivalent and I'm just blocking what
1: it's called uh, right now, but it's the uh, sort of the, the, Highest kind of honor that a uh, researcher, scholar, or artist can achieve in Canada. So there's there's several kind of uh, sort of sections of it. I, I'm uh, I got my fellowship through these. I can't remember what it's called. I think it's social sciences kind of part, but they also have uh, artists and people working in sort of physical sciences like chemistry and physics and uh, humanities, uh, sort of a wide range of different
0: areas. Cool. Well, yeah, congratulations on that. That sounds like a wonderful honor. Thank you. And uh, that's good because now we know that we got the real deal here on the podcast today.
1: <laughs> yes, uh, uh, in
0: Canada, uh, real deal
1: in Canada anyway.
0: So, <laughs> okay. Well, I, I might have a few listeners there. I'm not quite sure. But anyway, so today we're talking about a topic that's near and dear to my heart and my brain and its heart uh, perfectionism. And I'm I'm kind of curious uh, before we dive into it about the title. When perfect isn't good enough, that's um, it's kind of kind of weird, right? Like perfect is the best. So how how could that how could it be the case that it isn't good enough? What's going on here?
1: Um, that is a good question. So that title uh, is is about twenty years old. So it was the title that uh, was given to our the first edition of this book, and it was actually a title that the publisher. Um, came up with, so it wasn't uh, wasn't my own title. And I guess the, the idea behind the title is that uh, there's you know for some people there is no good enough, that no matter what they achieve, they end up raising the bar and uh, basically concluding that you know even if they did achieve some standard or goal that maybe it wasn't high enough or it doesn't count in some way uh, so that you can you can never be good enough for people who suffer from sort of extreme perfectionism.
0: That's that's a good interpretation. Um, I, I had my own, which was that perfectionism yeah. is never good enough because it's not even good. It's like an awful thing uh, to shoot for. And so clearly it's it's somehow not good enough. But uh, yeah, okay, cool. So um, perfectionism is, it's not something that you would find, I guess, in like a, a manual of like the DSM, right? It, it It's not gonna appear there alongside anxiety or depression or OCD is, is that accurate?
1: That is accurate. So it's, it's something that's elevated in those different problems. The only problem in DSM-5 that has the word perfectionism in the criteria is obsessive compulsive personality disorder, uh, which is a problem where people have these rigid kind of standards about how things have to be. So uh, they may have lots of rules about uh, kind of what's right and what's wrong, for example. Uh, they People tend to be very detail oriented and sort of need to have things done a certain way, uh, may spend excessive amounts of time organizing things and pay attention, paying attention to kind of details to the point that they don't get things done. Uh, so that's certainly a, a type of perfectionism, but it's it's different than the kind of perfectionism we might see in depression or anxiety.
0: Okay. Yeah. And we'll get into the definition of that. That's a good segue. So at least in american culture and and perhaps in western culture overall being a perfectionist uh, doesn't seem like a bad thing there's many people who i guess famous people who claim that they're perfectionists or tell people that they're perfectionists um and it sort of aligns well with hard a hard worker uh at least in some cases so what's what's the problem with it why would why would someone um not think it's a good Sort of character trait, and and also, uh, maybe we can get a definition um, while you're at it. Sure, yeah. So there's there's lots of different definitions. If you just look it
1: up in the dictionary, it's basically a tendency to to strive to be perfect. Um, that would be perfectionism. Um, so uh, kind of having very high standards. So that in and of itself is not a problem. Um, so if you if you're driven to have high standards and perform at a high level because you enjoy performing at a high level and you get a sense of satisfaction out of doing that, um, then that's there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, on the other hand, we see lots of people who set these impossibly high standards, uh, so standards that they can't they can't meet, um, and they judge their, their worth based on whether they meet those standards. Um, so they're sort of setting themselves up for failure. And for a lot of these people, uh the perfectionism is not so much driven by just uh, feeling good when you succeed but rather a fear of failure or f- a fear of being judged by others or disappointing others if you don't meet their standards um, so if it's driven more by those kinds of factors and uh, in, in which cases when people don't meet their standards they end up being very hard on themselves and feeling terrible um, then perfectionism is potentially a problem um, we also see sometimes people are set these high, impossibly high standards that prevent them from even trying. Uh, so they may procrastinate, they may put things off, they may not take risks. Uh, and as, as a result, they, they don't get done the things that they need to get done. And the perfectionism is clearly interfering with their lives. So uh, we often think about sort of good perfectionism or adaptive perfectionism or healthy perfectionism, which is the kind that you were talking about. Um, and also perfectionism that's impairing or unhealthy uh, or maladaptive. And uh, and the two can coexist in the same person. So one person may be perfectionistic in their work uh, to the extent uh, that, uh, in, in a way that leads them to perform better in their work, um, but might have other domains in their life where the perfectionism is getting in the way, maybe in their relationships, for example. So so it's, it's complicated.
0: It is indeed. Um, yeah, yeah, that's definitely showed up in my life in in a few different ways. Uh, I'm certainly not a perfectionist when it comes to cleaning my room or doing the dishes, but then other areas of my life, uh, you know, big choices, relationships, it very much shows, shows its ugly head. So yeah, it is a complicated phenomenon. Um, yeah, on page 11 of the book, you describe that perfectionism can be thought about in a few different ways, whether or not it's self-oriented, other oriented or socially prescribed. Um, can you say a little bit about the the different themes um, that perfectionism might take according to that sort of distinction?
1: Yeah. Um, so this is based on work by um, uh, Paul Hewitt and, and Gordon Flett uh, up here in Canada. Um, so they identified these three types of perfectionism and self-oriented perfectionism is a tendency to set standards for yourself that are Uh, often unreasonably or unrealistically high or or impossible to uh, to attain so they're they're standards that are for oneself so i might uh, for example if i'm a student i might believe that i always need to get an a on everything so i might set that as a a standard or an a plus or something like that Um, other oriented perfectionism is perfectionism that is aimed at others so it involves having unreasonably high expectations of others So uh, I might expect that my, if I'm a parent, that my children always have to get perfect on all of their exams, for example. And then that third type uh, socially prescribed perfectionism is a tendency to assume that others have expectations for me that are excessively high. Um, so my parent, I might believe that my parents expect me to, to always do perfect or my boss or my coworkers or my friends. Um, so it's really feeling external pressure that may or may not actually be there. And we find that of these three, all all of these are sometimes associated with, with problems. Um, but of these three, it's the socially prescribed perfectionism that tends to be most elevated in people with problems like anxiety and depression.
0: Oh, interesting. So it's a for a lot of the population, it's a a lot about the perceived judgments and pressures of, you know, bosses and friends and coworkers and and things like that. Is is that what you're saying?
1: Yeah, especially that kind of unhealthy kind of perfectionism. So, we we do like people with elevated self-oriented perfectionism. If they don't have those high expectations of others, um, are less likely. Again, that might be more that sort of healthy perfectionism, that where people are just they're driven to succeed and do well, but it's not necessarily because they're afraid of failing or, or they um, are afraid of disappointing others. It's more internally driven. Uh, so, so that is less likely to be associated with, with problems like anxiety and depression. And that's that self-oriented perfectionism. But, but sometimes it is. There's certainly studies showing that uh, it's kind of mixed findings there. So there's some studies, for example, in eating disorders showing elevated self-oriented perfectionism. And, and we do see that in other problems as well, depending on the study. There's sort of mixed findings, but the, the one that's most consistently found to be elevated in anxiety and depression is the socially prescribed perfectionism.
0: Interesting. Well, at least anecdotally, I can tell you that as someone with anxiety and OCD and perfectionism about, um, you know, performance and decision-making, um, I had, I had a, an awful time my first semester of college, um, not not feeling able to read the many hundreds of pages of uh, literature that they were prescribing uh, to our freshman seminar every week. And even though I could have you know, made B-pluses or A-minuses in it, I dropped out of the course because I couldn't do all the reading. Um, so that was clearly, at least in my uh, estimation, some maladaptive form of self-oriented perfectionism.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Um, you know, one of the things I, I, am the director of our master's and PhD program, um, in psychology. And one of the things I warn all of our students of the first day that they begin the program is, um, that they're not going to be able to do all the reading and they're not going to be able to get everything done that they need to get done. And one of the decisions they're going to need to make every day is, you know, who are they going to disappoint that day? Um, Mm. it's just, the volume is just, uh, impossible. Um, Uh, and yet that's sort of standard in, in many graduate
0: programs. Yeah. Well, that's good advice. I, I appreciate that sentiment. I think perfectionism, uh, obviously is, is a problem and, and it's, it's a problem for a lot of people. And I know there's parts of the book where you did talk about this, but where do you, is there any research to suggest where it comes from or, or how people adopt these, uh, unreasonably, um, high standards, um, for themselves or for others?
1: Yeah, so there, there's uh, indirect uh, research, so there's sort of correlational research um, that suggests possible causal factors, but we don't we don't really know for sure. And uh, and chances are that the causes for one person are very different than the causes for another person. Um, but one thing that we do see in people with high levels of perfectionism, uh, they tend to report that their parents had very high standards for them, and their parents uh, were 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 critical uh, as well compared to people who don't have high levels of perfectionism. Uh, So those experiences uh, in childhood may help to contribute to perfectionism possibly. Um, We also know that people with high levels of perfectionism will often report that that perfectionism is reinforced, uh, so they get rewarded for it. Uh, So by putting lots of effort in their parents, their teachers, their coworkers, their bosses, um, tell them, you know, you did an amazing job on that. Way to go. Uh, you know, wish everyone else uh, you know, could do that level of work that you're doing. And that feels good. And that makes it more likely that people are going to strive to to get that feedback again in the future and maybe worried about not getting that feedback in the future. Uh, so that kind of reinforcement may play a role as well. Um, so uh, those are both things involving uh, learning. Another example might be negative experiences. So if people, um, I mentioned parents tend to be more critical, for example, people with perfectionism report that anyway. Um, uh, Just in general, if people have had maybe had some negative experiences as a result of not uh, uh, putting as much effort into things uh, in school, for example, um, they may uh, sort of start to more perfectionistic in their work in that in that domain for example so people's experiences can feed into this um people's beliefs uh, as well so um, we know that we often see in people who tend to be perfectionistic we see certain kinds of beliefs the belief that others will judge me negatively if i don't do things perfectly or the belief that um that you know, I am going to make mistakes uh, and it's going to be a disaster if I do. Um, those kinds of beliefs can contribute to perfectionism. And there are probably also biological factors that make people more uh, susceptible to perfectionism than, than others. And we know that um, there's a little bit of research, for example, not much um, on uh, genetic factors in perfectionism. And like other personality traits, uh, perfectionism is at least moderately heritable. So there's there's a, an, an aspect of it that seems to be inherited. Um, another factor, this is also related to learning, I know I'm jumping around a bit, um, is uh, watching other people be perfectionistic. So if you grow up with parents who are perfectionistic, for example, you may just learn that that's the way to be. Um, the same way we learn other Aspects of our culture, for example, just by watching other people, um, we learn our personality traits uh, to some extent by watching other people when we're when we're young. Um, so that that may be a factor as well. Um, I've also seen people just anecdotally who have described the opposite, where they've said, "You know, my parents were complete slobs; the place was a mess. They were really unorganized, and I was determined not to be like that." You know, so I, you know, so it's sort of a reaction and wanting to do the opposite of what parents uh, did in that particular case. So, so again, it's complicated. There are many different factors that probably play a role, and those factors are, are probably different. You can have two people with very similar patterns of behavior, maybe, who have developed those patterns for different reasons or for com- you know, different combinations of those reasons. Because again, it's probably not any one thing that uh, causes it for any given person.
0: Yeah, so the causal chain is uh, not so easily deciphered. Um, for, for all people in all places at all times.
1: No, no. And, and the, the good thing is you don't always need to know what caused it to, uh, to make changes so when we're trying to make changes, we're much more interested in, uh, what's keeping the problem going than maybe what originally caused it, uh, decades ago.
0: Well, great. And that's a good segue. Um, cause on page 12, you discuss, um, gauging whether or not a belief about standards for performance is appropriate whether it's in that category of sort of healthy perfectionism where you're responding to like excitement or joy for meeting high standards, or perhaps if it's out of fear, um, it seems that there's four ways in which we can look at a belief about our own performance or other performance to figure out whether or not it's excessive. Uh, well, and the first one is excessiveness. Um, can the goal be met? The second one you've written here is accuracy. Uh, is it true that I must meet this standard? Thirdly, the cost and benefits of holding on to such a standard. And then finally, the, the flexibility of it. Do you want to talk a little bit about those four different dimensions of a, a belief about um, personal standards?
1: Yeah. So um, if you think of somebody who has uh, sort of healthy, high standards. Um, so I'm, I'm cheating a little bit. I just opened the book because it's a while since I... Where, where are the four... Uh,
0: let's see <laughs> so if you look on on the second to last paragraph on page 12 um yeah i see that yeah okay
1: yeah so i just want to make sure i hit on all four of those so um the appropriateness and the excessiveness are actually uh, uh related so uh, you know so one in terms of excessive, what what I would just define as excessive is whether the standard is is sort of out of proportion to what mo- the standards that most people might have. And in and of itself, having again these really high standards or excessive standards, uh, that's not a problem. So if you set these really high really high bar and you try to achieve that, and uh, probably most people who do extraordinarily extraordinary things. Um, initially set an excessively high standard and and tried to meet that and many people don't meet those high standards but some people may be able to do that so when we think about elite athletes or you know people like uh you know steve jobs and bill gates and uh elon musk and you know people who have done these extraordinary things in technology or business you know these are all people who set these excessively Uh, Extremely high standards that most people probably couldn't meet, um, but they were able to meet those standards. And if they hadn't set them, that wouldn't have happened. So again, that in and of itself is not a problem. Um, It's the the last two, um, the uh, the costs, the the relative costs and benefits of setting a standard is something to consider, and then the flexibility. So uh, this is, you know, if the costs of setting a standard are higher than any kind of benefits that you're getting out of that standard. Uh, So for example, if um, you're setting a, a, you know, it's really important for you to be in a relationship, but that individual has to meet all of these different kind of standards that you've set that are impossibly high. And as a result, you're not able to be in a relationship because even when you're in one, you're so critical of the other person that it doesn't last, for example, or, or, you know, anyone who, you know, might be a potential, a partner for relationship, you're you're automatically excluding. Um, then the costs of that high standard may be not worth the uh, potential benefits from that standard. So that's something to reflect on. Uh, and again, any one individual may have some standards that are uh, problematic and others that are not. It's it's not the idea of treatment is not to get rid of all of your standards and let everything turn to chaos. It's rather to identify the ones that are causing problems for you and and seeing if you can change those. The other thing is the flexibility that's really important. So for a lot of people uh, who have more kind of healthy perfectionism, they might set these high standards when things don't work out, um, they put it aside and they move on to to something else. So they're not necessarily extremely uh, sort of harsh on themselves or, or um, negative toward, toward themselves. So you don't see that depression or anxiety that you might, um, that you might see otherwise. So so those are some of the things to uh, to look for to help make that distinction. If you have a high standard, but if it doesn't work out, you're okay with that. Um, you don't judge your self-worth based on whether you've met your, that standard, then that's likely not to be a problem. Uh, on the other hand, if, if if that's not happening, then it may be a problem.
0: Sure. Yeah. Thanks for cashing that out. I, I think that this rubric, especially the last two, are, are, are may be really helpful, um, especially the cost-benefit thing. Do you find that this theme that, that you discussed, which resonates with me about relationships, is that something that comes up um, or has come up a lot for you in your practice of people coming to you, having perfectionistic ideas about uh, relationships and, and suffering the costs of uh, not being able to be in one given those standards? Um, it's something that that is
1: uh, that comes up. So when you, in, when you do research on perfectionism and you, you interview people and ask them about those kinds of things, uh, it comes up. Um, I suspect it comes up a lot in couple therapy where people are not getting along. Uh, that's not the work that I do. So my work is mostly focused on uh, anxiety related problems. Uh, so I'm more likely to see people who, who are setting these sort of high standards for themselves and are very anxious because they're worried that they're not going to meet them um, in, my own, in my own work.
0: Mm. Got it. Thank you. Yeah. Um, so something else I want to discuss, uh, another theme in the book is these perfectionistic thinking styles. And they sound to me a lot like the cognitive distortions you might find if you read, I guess, like a cognitive behavioral therapy textbook. Um, but some of these were new to me, and I, and I thought they were worth pointing out. So there's one called filtering, Um, I'm at, I'm on page 49 now, so Mm -hmm. yeah, (laughs) move along. Um, and it's a form of perfectionistic thinking where we selectively focus on and magnify negative details at the expense of other information, maybe neutral or positive. I'm editorializing a little bit here, but dismissing almost all of the details about a certain situation, except for the the negative ones. Um, and focusing on that. Do you want to talk a little bit about filtering? Uh, sure. Yeah. So that it's, it's,
1: the term filtering is not used uh, consistently across different cognitive behavior therapy books, but that, that idea of filtering is certainly described in most CBT books. Um, it's often caused or called other things, sometimes selective attention or selective abstraction. Uh, so when it tends to be selective in what you're attending to. So you're paying attention to information that's consistent with your beliefs. Uh, and we all tend to do this, so if you have strong political views, for example, you're going to watch whatever news channel tells you what you want to hear, and you're probably going to to not watch things that tell you different things. You're going to pay more attention to information that's consistent with your beliefs. Um, social media is going to reinforce that as well by only sending you information that's sort of consistent with your beliefs. Uh, and the same thing happens in other domains uh, other than politics. So in perfectionism, for example, Uh, If it's very important for people to be perfect, they have this belief that they have to meet these high standards, they're going to selectively attend to things that are most relevant to them, the sort of threat-related information. So for example, you might get a job evaluation that may be glowing overall, but there might be one little comment in that evaluation that maybe says that you're a little bit quiet in meetings or something. Um, The perfectionist is going to kind of focus in on that one negative thing potentially and ignore everything else that's positive about that job evaluation so that's essentially what what uh, we're referring to here when we talk
0: about filtering so one thing I want to point out that I've heard you say a couple of times uh, so far in our conversation is this idea that the perfectionist has sort of set standards um, these standards being you know excessive or or hard to reach but I wonder, is, is that setting of standards, is that a, a sort of explicit thing that they have sort of sat down to do, or or is it more uh, of an implicit standard? Because I could imagine there being a lot of very rational people who suffer with perfectionism and know that there's no need for them you know to be uh, great in all of these aspects or get an A every time or uh, have the perfect partner or the perfect job. But um, somewhere somewhere in their minds, those standards are, are held, but Maybe weren't set by them in a sort of autonomous way is can you speak about that
1: yeah i think you're you're right that often it's implicit and it's not until people start reflecting that uh that they will recognize these standards and often it's not the perfectionism that brings people in to seek help uh it's it's the depression or the anxiety or the eating disorder or whatever problem that they're having maybe that's stemming from the perfectionism, and it's not until they start to reflect a little bit that they may see these Uh, these high standards. And, you know, most of us have two, you know, we, in in any given situation, we may have two or more voices telling us things. So for example, I've, I've uh, surveyed audiences about um, fear of flying and I've asked audiences, but when I'm giving talks to a hundred or 200 people, uh, how many of you have had the thought sitting on an airplane that this plane might crash? And almost everybody puts up their hand. I know I've had that thought, and yet I'm not afraid of flying, Uh, and that's because I also have a voice telling me, "Yeah, it could crash, but it's probably not going to crash." Um, And the question is often which voice is louder. So you know, if we bring this back to perfectionism, um, people may have part of them that says, "Yeah, I I know that I don't have to be perfect. I know that it's okay not to, you know, if if I don't get an A plus, the things are going to be okay." But then there's also another part of them that. Is telling them something different, um, and that voice may be louder uh, in certain contexts. Um, but uh, to, to your point, though, people may not always. Um, sometimes they're very aware of that voice, and and sometimes it's more it, it's more implicit or a little more diffuse, and you know they're they're worried about people uh, judging them negatively or having being embarrassed by an outcome uh, but may not have identified exactly what the standard is that they're trying to meet
0: Mm -hmm. so I, i wonder then for the people whose standards are sort of implicitly set somewhere in their brains and isn't like rationally arrived at um once they become aware of that voice uh or figure out that one of the voices in their head has set those standards is that, can that be a, a sort of a re- re- revelation, revelation to them? Um, and then they can adapt to that, to that, or if it's not something that they are kind of rationally stuck to, does, does just knowing that those standards exist in their heads, is that enough to help them begin like a successful course of treatment? Um, yeah, I think, I mean, one step is helping people to
1: identify the standards and the thoughts and the predictions that, that they're making. Um, and then... Uh, for some people just recognizing that leads them to start thinking differently about the situation on their own um, for other people uh, learning specific skills for how to change that kind of thinking um, is is uh, important and it's again it's not necessarily about r- lowering standards because it's not it's not a problem to have high standards it's more um, changing how you respond when you don't meet those standards you know because we can't you know, we can't all. You know, I'm always setting high standards and all kinds of things, and um, but but there's just no time to meet them all. Um, so, how you how do you respond to not meeting standards in some ways is more important than what the standard was.
0: mm mm-hmm. Cool. Yeah, and that's a, that'll be a good transition point. I, in a little bit, I want to get to uh, how you fix all this, um, but I want to cover a couple of the other uh, perfectionistic thinking styles that I think might be useful for some listeners. So I know there's one highlighted called probability, um, overestimating or overestimation. And I think this is a scenario where someone's convinced they're going to fail an exam when all signs point to, uh, that not happening. Uh, I have a good friend that I've seen do this many times and I'm always encouraging her that, you know, she's not going to fail the test, but, uh, somehow, um, is convinced that that is, um, going to be the eventuality. So.
1: Yeah. So that's, uh, yeah. Overestimating the likelihood of something bad happening that, that if I don't do something perfectly, I'm going to fail the exam or I'm going to lose my job. Um, uh, another, uh, kind of cognitive, uh, kind of style that, that uh, I'm not sure if if it's one that you were going to focus on, but I think it's an important one. So I'll just I'll just mention it is catastrophic thinking, and the way we use that term in the book is people use that term in lots of different ways, but the way we use it is overestimating the importance of a particular outcome that. If I were to fail an exam, that would be an absolute disaster. I wouldn't be able to get past that. Uh, I couldn't cope with that. So it's overestimating. So probability overestimation is overestimating the likelihood of something happening. Catastrophic thinking is overestimating how bad it would be if it were to happen or uh, the belief that I won't be able to cope if it does happen.
0: Mm, Okay. So they're really intimately related. Um, Yeah, I like that. That's interesting. Catastrophic thinking is actually my favorite one. Uh, cause it's the one that I do the most. Um, I remember there, there, so there's a list here where like, there were examples of different catastrophic thinkings or thoughts and I filled my own in, um, where was it here? You know, I can't handle making a mistake in front of the class. It'd be absolutely terrible if I missed a deadline. And there was one here that says, if I do not stay thin, nobody will ever be attracted to me. I know that a few years ago when I was starting to lose my hair. I could have said, if I lose my hair, nobody will ever be attracted to me, and that was definitely a big fear of mine for a long time uh, since 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 when i'm no longer concerned about it, but that definitely felt like a sort of catastrophic scenario that would would have made it hard to cope yeah yeah,
1: and that's a common uh, kind of fear amongst amongst men um, uh, despite uh, despite not much evidence like if you look at the percentage of men who are married versus not, um, I'm sure, uh, I, I would think that hair loss is not a big factor in, uh, whether people get into relationships would be my guess, man. I'm guessing uh, as someone who's, who's lost a lot of his hair, I'm guessing that that's the case. Um,
0: <laughs> we'll have to do the statistical analysis. Maybe I'll put yes. that in the footnotes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So there's something called the paradox of perfectionism. Um, and i put it in bold because i wanted to ask you about that i think it's on page 59 do you remember i I, i'm sorry that i'm asking you about a book that you wrote such a long time ago but it still seems really so yeah
1: no uh not a problem um so i've got page 59 yeah i think it's the um okay so people who are perfectionist sorry i I i uh I should have been uh, more prepared for that question, but uh, people who are perfectionists no. often, <laughs> often believe that in order to maintain order and control in their lives, they have to engage in various perfectionistic behaviors. Uh, and I describe two different types of behaviors here. So some that are designed to help people meet their excessively high standards and others that involve avoiding situations that uh, might trigger that feeling like they need to be uh, perfectionistic. And I, uh, Yeah. So I think what I'm talking about here is especially those behaviors that lead people to avoid that perfectionism, which really drives people to be perfect. If it's paralyzing them and preventing them from doing what they need to do, it's actually preventing them from performing at a high level. Um, so it's sort of like people who worry about the bills that are coming in, who it's just too anxiety provoking to think about the bills. They throw them into a drawer. Um, and uh, and they feel some relief because they don't have to deal with it. They're actually increasing their likelihood of having to confront their financial stresses at a much higher level later by by avoiding.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, so I think that's what I was talking about here
0: right. so if they're if their perfectionistic standard was to be um, really adept at managing their finances,, um, because they have procrastinated for so long, they wind up being really bad at managing finances uh, because of their perfectionistic worries.
1: Yeah. And they actually cause more problems for themselves than they would uh, if they had just dealt with that stress earlier. You know, there's an interesting uh, study that was done I think it was in the 1970s. It's a pretty old study, but it was very elegant. Uh, what they did is they had people first fill out a questionnaire measuring the fear of failure, which is very much related to perfectionism. Uh, And then they just gave them a basketball and told them to shoot the basketball into the the net. Uh, And what they measured was how close people stood to the net. Uh, So they didn't tell them where to stand. They just said, take the ball and shoot it into the net. And what they found was that people who were very afraid of failing tended to stand very, very, either very, very close to the net where they were guaranteed to get the ball into the net or they would stand really, really far away uh, so they were guaranteed to not get the ball into the uh, net. But at least they could say, well, yeah, I didn't get it in, but it's because I was standing far away. Um, They'd have an excuse for it. Mm. Um, People who were not afraid of failing, they stood at a moderate distance where there was some challenge but also a chance that they would get it in. And I think we see that a lot in anecdotally, anyway, you see that same kind of pattern in people with perfectionism. So some people work extra, extra hard to make sure that their presentation is perfect, um, because they don't want to risk having a, uh, a, a presentation that's not perfect. And then other people uh, either, you know, procrastinate and don't work on it at all, because it's just too stressful to do that, or they try to get out of the presentation completely. Um, uh, and, and, you know, more often than not pay a price for those kinds of, uh, behaviors.
0: Yep. Yeah. I think that's valid. I can give you one more that I think is a paradox of perfectionism. So if you have the sort of perfectionistic theme of wanting the perfect relationship, the paradox there is that you will have no relationship at all because the perfect one doesn't exist. So you exactly. Yeah. Yeah, it's a good one. So this is all the bad news. I want to transition now to strategies for overcoming perfectionism, because this would be a really sad podcast if we didn't talk about that (laughs) at all. Um, Yeah. I know that from reading the book, you you know, some of the things you want to do is you want to figure out, you know, what your themes are. You want to measure it, catalog it. There's mentions of keeping a diary. Um, In this diary, you might record events or thoughts related to perfectionism fears or other emotions surrounding it, um, and then try to suggest maybe some alternative thoughts um, or other ways of looking at situations or or mental events that have occurred. So what is, I mean, I guess generally speaking, how do people overcome perfectionism? And then specifically through some of the things that you mentioned in the book, um, what are the nuts and bolts? Yeah. So um, the first set of strategies that we talk about are
1: cognitive strategies, and these involve challenging perfectionistic thinking. So most of us tend to believe that our thoughts are true. Uh, and it's you know it's it's hard to kind of shift your thinking when you are when you assume that your thoughts are true. The other thing that we do as we mentioned earlier is we tend to attend to things selectively. So uh, we may believe something, but then we may only pay attention to things that confirm those beliefs, which make it even harder to uh, to change one's beliefs. So one of the things we uh, encourage people to do is to identify uh, those negative kind of thoughts, perfectionistic thoughts, depressive thoughts, anxiety-related thoughts, um, to kind of make a note of what they are, and rather than assuming they're true, to begin to question those. Um, and we have all kinds of different questions that people can ask Uh, ask themselves. So I might ask myself, you know, is that necessarily true? Are there exceptions to that? Uh, Would everyone else agree with me uh, with respect to that thought? And if not, how are they thinking differently about this thought, uh, the situation than I am? What evidence do I have that my way of thinking about it is better than their way? Uh, What evidence do I have that my way of thinking about it is not as accurate as as other people, uh, the way that other people might be thinking? Um, I might ask the question: If somebody else was having this thought that I'm having right now, what would I tell them? Uh, or if somebody who cares about me was knew that I was having this thought, what would they say to me? Would they say, "Oh yes, that thought is accurate"? Or would they say, "Well, wait a second. You know, these these are some other ways that you might look at that." Um, I might encourage people to ask themselves the question, you know, what are the costs and benefits of having this particular thought right now? Um, Are there good reasons maybe to let go of this thought? Um, I might uh, ask myself, are there situations, you know, there might be situations where this thought makes sense, are there other situations where maybe it it doesn't make sense? Uh, I might ask the Uh, the question, just what are some other ways of looking at this? So, you know, it's not so much about positive thinking because sometimes a negative thought may be accurate. Uh, It's more about realistic thinking or balanced thinking, or even just flexible thinking, being able to look at things from lots of different perspectives uh, rather than just that one perfectionistic perspective. You never, you may never know whether a thought is true or false, but Just being able to look at it from lots of different perspectives uh, can help people to realize that if nothing else, it's a subjective kind of thought and that different people can look at things in different ways. So those are some examples, um, but it's all about trying to loosen up what otherwise might be a more fixed or rigid kind of thought. Um, And it's done through what we call Socratic questioning, just asking these questions designed to help people look at things in lots of different ways and we have lots of tools for doing that we have diaries that people can use and, and fill out um, and there are also different experiential methods that people can use to look at the evidence um, so an example is what we call behavioral experiments where people pit these two thoughts against one another the perfectionistic thought and a, and a, an alternative thought and try it out in real life to see which is true so if I have the thought that if I'm having people over my house has to be absolutely perfect um, you know I might do some quick cleaning up but I would purposely maybe leave a few things not perfect uh, to see see what happens what happens if my uh, have guests over and there are no towels in the bathroom I you know, purposely forget to put them there um, and and to see what happens and is it manageable is it a You know, I might think it's going to be a disaster, but is it a disaster? So anyway, those are, those are some examples of cognitive strategies that, you know, strategies we can use for shifting thinking.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for that. That seems, uh, relevant and also eerily similar to the exposures, uh, that people are supposed to do when they go through, um, exposure and response prevention treatment for OCD.
1: Yeah. So, so, uh, you know, in the book, we kind of separate out exposure from what I just described, but, but in a way, it's very similar. Um, so with exposure, those, those behavioral experiments that I described are really like exposure practices where you're purposely doing the thing that you're afraid to do. And if we think of perfectionism as a fear of imperfection, a fear of making mistakes, uh, purposely doing those things and learning that whatever you're predicting will happen uh, doesn't happen.
0: Mm-hmm. So yeah. I guess fundamentally, oh sorry, I, I think I cut you off.
1: Well, I was just going to say the response prevention is preventing the different uh, overprotective behaviors, safety behaviors, the things that people do to protect themselves from making mistakes. Uh, so that that what what in OCD is called uh, response prevention would be an important component of what we do uh, in treating perfectionism as well.
0: Got it. So I guess fundamentally here, what we're trying to get people to do is, is like you said, take some of their thoughts and feelings with a grain of salt, um, try to look at it from a number of different perspectives and, you know, perhaps failing that or with the aid of doing some kind of behavioral intervention to force them, uh, to acknowledge, you know, that a certain thought is perhaps not super helpful or maybe not even accurate. Um, the, the thing that I think that is difficult about this, obviously it's, it's harder. People would have solved the problem on their own is, is you're, you're getting a bunch of people just walking around with their brains, you know, atop their heads, needing to question a lot of what's coming out of, you know, this amazing object that we have between our ears. And if, if it's relentlessly putting out bad information into your head, it seems like quite a tall order, um, to get people in the mode or, or even prepare for, you know, a lifetime of needing to question, um, the suggestions that their brains are floating down, you know, the rivers of their mind. So I just was wondering if you had anything to say about, you know, the, the order of difficulty uh, for some of these problems. Um, well, it, it varies, you know, so,
1: uh, you know, a lot of people, uh, I, I would say, get partial benefit from from doing this kind of work so it's not like they go from being a, a really extreme kind of perfectionist to being sort of a happy-go-lucky person who has, who doesn't have a care in the world um, uh, so to the other extreme so for, for most people what we see is that it's better than it was so instead of you know, interfering at a high level in their work or in their relationships, it, it interferes sometimes. Uh, it's not as bad and it doesn't last as long as maybe it did in the past. Um, uh, but they still, you know, they still have to kind of keep it in check uh, from time to time. So that's sort of a, a typical outcome, not just from treatment of perfectionism, but most anxiety-related problems. So if we think about OCD, most people I've worked with with OCD over the years still have OCD. You know, there's a small percentage of people who are completely remitted from their OCD and they never have a problem again there's a small percentage of people who get no benefit um but for most people they're they're better than they were instead of taking up 8 hours a day it's taking up an hour a day or an hour and a half a day and it doesn't get as bad as it used to and or maybe it maybe it does but instead of getting that bad once a day it's getting that bad every 3 weeks for a few hours or something like that so it's it's better than it was and and I think that's sort of a realistic goal for I think any kind of thing, you know, whether it's back pain, any any kind of thing that people are trying to change, that's more of a, a you know, a part of who we are, or a chronic kind of thing. Um, so does that answer your question?
0: Yeah, yeah, I I think it does, um, and it's a, it's a good and realistic uh, view for people's expectations of of just how much better they can be. Um, I think the ideas we've been talking about have actually been captured in quite a nice way. Um, in the book, so on page one thirty, you describe something called the head slash heart problem, um, and you write that the head heart problem occurs when an individual an individual knows rationally that a particular style of thinking is incorrect or inappropriate, but nevertheless feels that the negative way of thinking is correct.
1: Yeah, it's, it's sort of like the the two voices that I talked about earlier. There's the the, vo- the rational voice and then the the anxious voice. Uh, I sometimes use the. Uh, kind of analogy of uh, Fred Flintstone. I and mean, Flintstone sometimes would have this devil on one shoulder and an angel on the other shoulder telling him, you know, the devil was saying, you know, do it, do it. And the angel was saying, no, don't do it, don't do it. Um, and it's sort of the same thing. You know, a lot of us have, uh, there's part of us that knows that something, you know, what's rational, uh, but there's also part of us that, that has that anxious voice. And it's, the question is often who's, which voice is, is louder in the moment?
0: Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just a few final things here, because I know we're getting close to the top of the hour. But one thing that really resonated with me, um, on page 239, you discuss OCD a bit, and there's this uh, block of bullet points about strategies for resisting rituals. And I know we're kind of jumping around here, but there was one here that I liked, which was remind yourself when you are doing fine and are not experiencing the obsession or performing the rituals that this proves that the ritual really doesn't help um i like this because you know one of my uh, compulsions is rumination and i ruminate a lot around big choices but i've been noticing you know in the past few days as i've read the book that a lot of little choices i don't ruminate on at all which sort of proves that rumination isn't like an essential component uh to making a successful choice so i thought that was a nice a nice little bullet point there yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. And there's, there's
1: so many factors that are, um, you know, what I often uh, encourage people to think about in these situations where they have big choices to make is first of all, when a choice is difficult to make, um, that probably means that there is no right answer, or you don't have enough information to make that answer. So when, when it, when there is a right answer, we don't, it's not hard to make the choice usually, you know, if you, uh, if there's only one restaurant that's open and you want to eat out, you know, go out for dinner, it's not hard to make that choice. And there's, you know, it's easy. It's, it's when, uh, again, when there's different uh, approaches that could, could be just as good and you don't have enough information or there is no way to kind of predict that. Um, so that, that's, I think, sometimes can be reassuring for people knowing that it's not like there's a right choice and a wrong choice. And if there was, you wouldn't be ruminating. And um, so I think that's one, one thing. The other thing is, um, are our choices permanent? You know, so I might ask a client a question, what if you make the wrong choice? You know, what if you decide to go to, you know, college for chemistry and you hate chemistry and you should have gone into philosophy? Um, What are your options at that point? Are these choices permanent? You know, some some are, but most aren't. A lot of choices that feel really important are probably not permanent.
0: Yeah, those are very helpful. Thank you for that. Yeah. So I've definitely taken up a bunch of your time um, and I really appreciate that. I want to give you a moment to um, highlight any work that you're doing or um, any things that the audience can look for, how to find you on the web, um, maybe forthcoming articles or research or books uh, or or anything you want to say about perfectionism in general. Sure. So I I came into this work really from...
1: Uh, as an anxiety researcher and somebody who specialized in anxiety treatment. And we were seeing a lot of elevated um, uh, perfectionism in in people with anxiety. And we did a bit of research showing that different kinds of anxiety problems like OCD and social anxiety were associated with elevated perfectionism. And at the time, so this was back in, uh, I think, Kind of 1995 or 1996 when we started thinking about uh, writing this book, um, there were no books on the topic. Uh, so what we did is we sort of applied what we knew about anxiety-based problems to perfectionism. And, and now since then, over the last 10 years, there have been quite a few studies looking specifically at the treatment of perfectionism, showing that these strategies uh, can be effective, not just for problems associated with perfectionism, but with perfectionism itself. Um, so the, the fields kind of come a long way over the years. Um, most of my work is still in anxiety related problems, but we, we dabble in perfectionism in terms of our research. Uh, I have a master's student uh, who just finished a master's project, for example, looking um, at perfectionism and social comparison. So uh, the tendency to, we all tend to compare ourselves to others, but we, we, we know that people with elevated levels of anxiety or depression um, and uh, most likely perfectionism tend to compare themselves to people who are much, much better than them at things, uh, which makes them feel worse. Whereas for people who are less perfectionistic, less anxious, less depressed, they tend to compare themselves to people who are similar to them. So that's one example of some research that we're, we're doing. Um, just in terms of new books coming out, I do have a, a new edition of uh, a book called the anti-anxiety the original edition was called the Anti-Anxiety Workbook. Uh, the new edition is called the Anti-Anxiety Program. Uh, so it's the second edition of that first book with a slightly different title, being published by Guilford Press. I believe it's available right now from Guilford.com uh, as a like a you can buy it as a digital book book like a PDF or an ebook. Um, and then I think the uh, the paper version is coming out. Printed version is coming out in early January. Uh, So that's the the newest book coming out. And Peter Norton is my co-author on that. And last thing I'll mention is my website. If people want to check out other work that we're doing, it's martinantony.com, M-A-R-T-I-N-A-N-T-O-N-Y.com. Antony has no H, and you can find me there.
0: Well, Dr. Antony, it's been a pleasure reading the book and talking to you and thanks for all the free therapy this hour. So, <laughs> um, yeah, thanks a lot for your time. You're welcome. It's a pleasure. Take care. So that's it. I hope you enjoyed today's conversation. Happy holidays, and I'll see you in January.